HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily soup and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is John Broida, who is the owner of Japan Knife Imports based in California. Before John founded Japan Knife Imports in 2010, he had a successful career as a fine dining chef and the great knives were essential for his job. He was so into Japanese knives that eventually he started a company now. He offers outstanding products along with essential services such as knife sharpening and repairs. And I received enthusiastic requests to have him on the show for my listeners, uh, for actually for his excellent work as well as warm personality. So today we'll discuss how the American chef became interested in Japanese knives, how Japanese knives are different from Western, uh, Western style knives, John's unique relationships with Japanese knives craftsmen, uh, what Japanese knives you should have, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan Eats is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with John Broder. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And like you, I spend much of my time trying to demystify Japan for people. <laughs> right. It's an endless work, but I heard you've been doing a great job. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. So, um, so first of all, we'd like to get to know you. So my quick question, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? So uh, my name is Jonathan Broida. I'm from Los Angeles, California, uh, born and raised here. Uh, although I've had the pleasure of living in a number of different places over the years, uh, I definitely would call myself an Angelino. Um, in terms of what I ate when I was growing up, I would say it's pretty typical American fare. Um, you know, the, the same kind of like spaghetti, sloppy joe, hamburger kinds of things that, that most people ate. But I had grandparents that were very into food and my dad also. Uh, and though we didn't cook so much of that kind of stuff at home, they took me out to a lot of interesting places. And for whatever reason, I've always been a very adventurous eater. And so I got to enjoy all kinds of fun foods, sweetbreads and, you know, veal and escargot, uh, oysters, all from a pretty early age. 
And I found that I enjoyed them, and that has stuck with me through life.、Mm, wow, you are the opposite of what I used to be. <laughs> It's like, like eating anything <laughs> when I grew up. So, all right.、Um, and I heard that you studied Japan at、uh, Colorado College and wrote a thesis on、yes. the subject of Japanese food. So, what made you interested、yes. in, Jap- uh, in Japan in the first place? So,、uh, to say that food is maybe the most important thing in my life, of course, aside from my kids and wife,、uh, would be an understatement.、Um, and that has always been the, the main driving factor behind、uh, much of what I've done.、Uh, so, I did get a degree in Asian studies at Colorado College, and I focused、uh, predominantly on Japan as I was studying that.、Uh, and the thesis、uh, was on the roots of sukiyaki and shabu shabu、uh, from like Meiji Jidai to kind of more modern times.、Mm. Um, I, My, I guess my Asian studies desire came from food. You know, I, I really enjoyed Japanese food once, once I was inter- int- introduced to it. But I guess what I was eating wasn't really Japanese food back then. The, the very typical, you know, like California roll type sushi and、uh, teriyaki chicken type stuff.、Um, and even that, even that I thought was good. So I figured, look, if their food is interesting, there must be a really interesting culture and history behind this kind of stuff. Uh, I would love to study it. And I had some other kind of plans along the way with that. But、uh, I've, I've been fascinated by Japanese food、um, for, for many years now. And I find that not just with Japan, but with any culture, the more that you study about the food and the more that you're able to share in the communal experience of eating in those countries and, and trying local foods, the more that you can really understand the culture and the context of the、mm-hmm. culture. And, and for me, that is fascinating. And then,、uh, instead of pursuing, pursuing that academic side, you, after you graduated from college, you spent many years as a chef. So, how did you get into、uh, cooking professionally? I actually started cooking before I graduated from college.、Um, I had this plan when I was in college where I was going to go and get this Asian studies degree,、uh, learn a couple of languages. I, I thought Japanese and you know, Chinese and Korean would be helpful.、Uh, little did I realize how hard some of those would be. Um, and then I would go into consulting to help companies expand into East Asia.、Uh, but I started to realize that being stuck behind a desk wasn't really for me. And I had always loved food.、Um, and I thought maybe it would be interesting to try cooking. So I had a longtime family friend、uh, who was a chef here in LA. And I reached out to him、uh, over one winter break to see if I could go and spend some time in his kitchen and see what professional cooking was all about. And、uh, he allowed me to come into his kitchen. And I spent all of my break there. I worked pretty much doubles the entire break. I fell in love with it. And they gave me some of the worst jobs to do、uh, you know, slicing onions for, for sandwiches,、uh, making toast for 2,000 people,、uh, you know, what, whatever it was. But、uh, I found deep satisfaction in the culture of being in a kitchen.、Uh, I've, I've often called kitchens the great equalizer in the sense that people don't care where you come from, what your cultural background is, what your socioeconomic background is, what your academic background is. They care that you show up on time, that you're a pleasant person to work with, that you work hard,、uh, you know, and that you're a good, a good member of the team. And I find that deeply refreshing. And I started to fall in love with cooking、uh, and kept at it. And eventually people started paying me for it.、Um, and so every time that I would have a break, I would go and cook somewhere.、Uh, summer vacation was time to cook.、Uh, and eventually I even got a job、uh, that, that pulled me away from college for a little bit. And、uh, so it actually took me some time to go back and finish my degree. Uh, after I'd started cooking professionally.、Mm, wow. So you really followed your heart. <laughs> yeah, I guess so.、Right. <laughs> I guess I got lucky in that regard. <laughs> and then,、um, so, so actually, where did you work as a chef and、uh, what types of food did you cook? I worked at a number of places, many of which are, are no longer around. But most of the food that I cooked, I guess, would be traditional Western food. Uh, very classic European based, French, Italian stuff. I worked at a, a wonderful Italian restaurant that focused on Southern Italian food, which is oddly similar to Japanese food in a lot of ways. Take very fresh ingredients、uh, and, and do them right. You know,、uh, Don't mess with them too much and allow them to shine as what they are.、Um, but I did get an opportunity to work in Japan for a little bit as well、um, through the connections of my now wife,、uh, then girlfriend. Uh, her family was able to connect me to a family that has a kaiseki restaurant in northern Japan. And I really, really wanted to learn about that, really to get into the, the nitty gritty of Japanese flavors and the ingredients that are available. But also,、uh, as I had already become knife obsessed at that point, I wanted to learn about knife skills. And in my opinion, Japan had had the best knife skills, the best knives,、uh, 
and so I should go there to learn about that kind of stuff. And that is what I did for a little bit. Uh, and so that was studying at uh, Benia restaurant in, in Yamagata. Mm, wow. Okay. So, wow. <laughs> Amazing. And then, you know, it's like a very, um, well, there are so many different kinds. Like you said, your thesis was about shabu shabu and sukiyaki, but, you know, it sounds like you had mm-hmm. a real kaiseki, like fine dining Japanese. Is that right? Well, I think Japanese food is, is so varied, as, as you know, right? Uh, there are so many different ways that people approach it. But for me, in, in my opinion, uh, kaiseki embodies so many different aspects of that in, in one place. Uh, in, in many ways, it's one of the better cultural representations of, of what Japan is and, and how, it, how it can be presented to people. It, it combines, you know, like pickling stuff, uh, obviously, gohan no mono, rice dishes. Uh, there, there are simmered things. You see even modern influences with meat coming in. And traditionally, of course, you end with tea ceremony. Uh, and so it, it was this beautiful kind of congruence of, of so many things that I loved about Japan uh, that I, I kind of fell in love with. Uh, it dates back to the, you know, Heian period when people started bringing food out in, in set courses on trays. Uh, and so it's, it's really unique uh, to, to Japan. And I, I, yeah, I thought it was so mm, cool. Right. And not to mention that seasonality. So each dish and every season. Absolutely. The kind of a whole respect to what you're given from God or nature. Well, Japan... Japan is so rooted in that kind of thing anyways. I mean, you see seasonality, not just through food, but even through the way that people live their lives, planning around, you know, like hanami or momijigari, uh, depending on what time of year it is. You know, what, people truly live seasonality. I think it's, it's so unique from the US. You know, here, especially in LA, uh, we don't even know what, what time of the year it is most of the time, right? We have like three seasons kind of, and they all blend together. Uh, and so people aren't aware of seasonality as it pertains to their lives or food. But in Japan, it's, integral to the way people dress, to the way people speak, to the way people eat, to how people decorate their houses. Um, it's, it's really a very interesting and fun right. thing. Yeah. And if you uh, study Japanese and then there's a kigo, that's a whole category of seasonal terms. There are thousands of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many of them I don't know. Yes. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Um, so, uh, so you got into Japanese knives at a early, very early stage uh, in your chef career. Right? Yeah. In fact, in my first cooking job. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the first, yeah. So uh, it's kind of funny. But uh, when I was in college, I thought that I was really into cooking. I thought I knew what I was doing. And I bought this set of Calphalon knives, uh, which were nicer than what other people that I was in college had at the time. And I was cooking with them and I thought they were great. And when I went to my first cooking job, uh, I got made fun of for these knives. My chef gave me actually a set of Forstner knives, which I think are now called Victor Knox. Uh, and was like, this is what real chefs use, you know, get to work. But one of my coworkers had started using a Mac knife. Uh, and Thomas Keller had started to make Mac knives popular at the time, you know, French Laundry being the amazing restaurant that it, it is and, and especially was back then. Uh, he had been using Mac knives. And so we all thought like, well, this guy is using them. Maybe we should check mm-hmm. them out. Uh, and so I went out and bought my first one and it immediately fell in love. I think for anyone that's used Japanese knives, there's such a clear night and day difference in performance uh, that it's hard to not be excited about that kind of thing. Mm. So can you, uh, and so, yeah, literally my first right. job. So can you explain uh, what mat knife is? It's MAC, um, like Santoku. Like those yes. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, so uh, Mac is a company. They're based actually out of Sakai, uh, but they produce knives in, in various areas. Um, and they produce pretty simple to use uh, Western handled knives predominantly. They do have some Japanese style handled stuff. But back then, the things that were popular were the Mac Superior series and the, the Mac Mighty series. And they were stainless, relatively thin, tough, durable, easy to use Japanese knives. And so the first one I bought was uh, Santoku, about 165 millimeters or so. Uh, and Santoku is like maybe one of the most common home knives in Japan. Uh, in fact, so, so common so that like if you ask regular people in Japan what knife they're using, more than Santoku, even if that's what they're using, they'll just say like Futsunobocho like just a, a regular knife. And what they mean is santoku because that is what they are using. Mm. Uh, so that is what I began with as well. Hey, this, they uh, uh, use because it's so versatile and uh, it doesn't stick, uh, the food doesn't stick to it. And it's like, there's so many different benefits rather than just uh, other comparable knives Certainly. Right, for the price. And, and you mentioned the Sakai. Sakai is the one specific area in Osaka. Um, there's a long mm-hmm. history and the best knives come from that Sakai 
uh, district. So. So there are many knife making regions around Japan. Sakai is, is one of them, and they're well known for certain types of knife making.、Uh, specifically, like any time that you buy yanagiba, deba, usuba, the traditional Japanese、uh, kataba or single bevel knives,、uh, those are predominantly from Sakai, and Sakai is well known to make the best of those.、Uh, and they have a really interesting way of going about it、mm. um, called the, the bungyose, the, the bungyo system. It's like a citywide assembly line.、Uh, but there, there are other regions as well that are. Amazingly well known for knife making and do a great right, job at that. Right, I should say that. So, yeah, Sakai is one of them, and there's so many,、mm. I mean, histories, and、yes. they're different traditions, and we really should preserve.、Um, so, uh, so, why are Japanese knives so popular to you as opposed to Western style knives? Because I think, I'm sure you use many different kinds of knives, right,、uh, during your chef's career. Absolutely.、Career. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've tried and I still use many different kinds of knives. I, I think it's important for, well, at least me as a professional, to, to have a, a valid opinion on a variety of things. And so I must then use those kinds of things. So I've used Western knives,、uh, custom knives, Japanese knives, Chinese knives, anything I can get my hands on.、Um, but what I think makes Japanese knives so unique,、hmm. uh, I, I, <laughs> I often describe this in philosophical terms. I, I always imagine that people have. Some kind of idea, some kind of concept of what sharp means to them.、Uh, and, you know, it's like this platonic ideal of sharpness that exists somewhere out there in the ether. And for most people,、uh, that idea is really similar to like a hot knife through butter or just cutting through something like it's not there. And it turns out that that's, that's why Japanese knives work well. They're extremely thin. And the thinner that they are cross sectionally, the less force is required to cut things. So they move through foods with great ease. There's a lot less force required. But beyond that,、uh, they, they tend to use different steel types that were used in other areas. And so they use things that were higher in carbon content or therefore higher in hardness. So things would stay sharp longer and take more acute edges、uh, and, and would take edges that were a little bit better. And the knives in general were designed to be、uh, easy to, to sharpen, easy to care for.、Um, and of course, Japan as a country takes immense pride in their craftsmanship. Uh, and the way that they go about doing things. And so you can see that in the crafts that come from Japan, obviously, including knives. And I think those are the main things that make it different. The cross sectional geometry, how thick or thin the knife is, is probably the biggest determining factor of how much people are going to enjoy a knife.、Mm, right. So,、um, so, so basically, that、uh, we can just go into more details and let's talk about the structural difference. And you said, you know,、um, I think. The hardness of the knife and which part of the knife really determines、uh, the type or the function of the knife. So, how different is the Japanese knife structure compared to、uh, Western counterpart? So, oddly enough, they come from very similar backgrounds when we're talking about double bevel or ryoba knives.、Uh, single bevel knives, the kataba bocho, they, they are a totally different thing、uh, entirely. And those are really uniquely Japanese things.、Uh, they were developed. Uh, kind of in the, the late Tokugawa period, late Edo period,、um, and, and have kind of grown from there. And so that's Yanagiba, Deba, and Usuba,、uh, which are like the three essential knives that one would need for doing traditional Japanese cuisine.、Uh, but ignoring those for a moment and moving to the things that most people are likely to use, the double bevel knives like Gyuto, Sujiki, and Petty, those are actually modeled after French style knives.、Uh, and so you see the Gyuto, the Japanese version of a chef's knife, is modeled after a French chef's knife. And the petty, a Japanese version of a utility knife, is modeled after a French version of a, of a petite knife or utility knife.、Um, and so they, they began as very similar things. But of course, like all things in Japan, Japan has this great ability to assimilate things and kind of Japanify them. And in many ways, that process, in, in my opinion, in my experience, tends to improve upon those things.、Uh, and so, kind of hearkening back to my thesis for a second on sukiyaki and shabu shabu, neither of them have roots from Japan. Uh, one is a Mongolian dish, the other comes from Portuguese and Dutch uh, settlers, um, or traders rather. And、uh, Japan took those things and kind of Japanified them. Well, Japan did the same thing with these knives. They took them, and instead of using the same kind of soft steel that was being used prior to that, they took their experience in making katana and kana and you know, various, various tools and weapons,、uh, and they took that experience and turned it into knife making.、Uh, and so they were using high quality steel and they were sharpening them in amazingly great ways. Uh, they were putting the steels together in ways that people hadn't done in other countries quite as often. So, laminating things together, kind of like they do in, in katana. And so, I guess one of the main structural differences that you would originally see,、uh, aside from the knives being thinner, is that they were using different steel types and constructing them in different ways. You would see sam mai bocho, like three, three layer knives where there were two layers of soft cladding and a core steel.
uh, or Wadi Komi, the same kind of thing where it's just the soft steel is wrapped all the way around it. And those are big structural differences. But the, the profiles also tend to be different because the way people use knives in Japan is different. Profiles tend to be a little bit flatter overall. There's not as much rocking that occurs. It's not one of the ways that people cut in Japan. There's no bolster, uh, so there's no finger guard stopping you from sliding up the blade, but it also means that you have a functional heel uh, that you can use and that the knives are easier to sharpen. Uh, so I guess those would be the, the key differences that, that one would see. As, as time has gone on, though, people have started to even Japanify things more. So whereas Gyuto used to be a Western handle knife solely in Japan, now we have Hua Gyuto, which features a Japanese-style handle uh, similar to that that you might see on a traditional single-bevel knife like Yanagiba. Mm. Kind of fun like that. Right. So, so basically, there are two types, uh, double-sided and single-sided, meaning like uh, yes. Japanese, a lot of Japanese unique knives have only one side, meaning using only one side to cut things such as um, fish so that the, right. you know, when you cut it, well, they interact with food differently. Uh, so it's kind of a misnomer that they're single-sided. I know we use the terms like single bevel or double bevel or single-sided and double-sided, kataba or yoba. But in reality, uh, the kataba or single bevel knives, they're sharpened on both sides, but they interact with food differently on either side. One side has a large bevel with a shinogi line uh, where the bevel kind of culminates. And the other side has a hollow ground backside with a flat rim all the way around it. So you have the uraski, the hollow ground bit, and the uraoshi, the flat spark around the edge. And they exert pressure differently on either side of the knife. And so uh, they allow you to cut in, in ways that a, a gyuto or sujiki, a double bevel knife, wouldn't allow you to do. You can get slices that are thinner while causing less damage. The overall angle is much more acute, so the knives feel sharper. Uh, they release food in different ways. And they're designed really well to deal with the kinds of techniques that you see in traditional Japanese cuisine, like uh, sogi zukuri or kirazukuri, various slicing techniques, katsuramuki, the kind of rotary peeling technique where people make sheets of daikon or cucumber or carrots. Uh, sengiri, which is a very similar technique to julienne. Uh, they're designed to do those kinds of things really well. Whereas double bevel knives, yobabocho, those are designed to do more general tasks. Like one would do cooking like yoshoku in Japan or Western food if you're here. Um, or just like easier things where you're not trying to, to be a technical master of Japanese cuisine at home. I mean, most people aren't cooking kaiseki at home. Most people are making, you know, like just normal home style Japanese food. And so it's a, uh, a different way of cutting mm, stuff. Right. And actually, I happened to get a nice, someone gave me a nice gift of Japanese traditional uh, one-sided. I, I, is one-sided? Shall mm-hmm. I say that? One-sided? <laughs> yeah, I, it's fine. I mean, I think we all know what we're talking yeah. about here. So it's a one-sided knife. And then I got some mm-hmm. uh, like sashimi quality fish. And obviously, mm-hmm. I can use my usual santoku. And I use the sashimi knife. And it's amazing how much difference it can make. It's just the whole yes. fiber, you know, the grain of the fish is intact, just beautifully. Um, even I can cook right. them. Even the cut surfaces are like shiny and, and, and glossy. Exactly. And I mean, it's a totally different right. look. Even I yeah. can do that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important to have nice yeah. that. Really, like, it really changes your experience. And, of course, the texture of the food. The texture of the food, the way that it oxidizes, um, you know, the, the goal is to cause as little damage to the food as possible as you're cutting stuff. And so having the more acute angles that the, the single bevel knives have um, and having the kind of food release that they have really makes a big difference there. Uh, how they exert pressure against food also makes a difference. So when you do things like ususukuri or like really thin slicing for flug or flounder, um, by, by using the, the hollow ground side, you're not really exerting as much pressure against the piece that you're slicing away. And so it's possible to slice really thin pieces without causing as much damage but you can see, like, it doesn't take much uh, effort or, or skill to have good results. Uh, of course, the, the more that you practice and the better you get, the better those results will be consistently. But really, anyone can do this kind of thing. It's not like, it's not rocket science, you know? Mm, right. And I really feel that you're so precious because you actually have cooked in a professional kitchen. So you can really speak as a chef, as a user. So <laughs> I appreciate that. It's been a while, but yes. <laughs> Right. And, and the other thing I, I often hear, uh, Japanese knives tend to be pulled instead of pushed like Western knives. So can you explain the yeah. difference? Yeah. So um, it's, it's not exactly a 100% of the case because there are definitely times where Japanese chefs use a uh, pushing motion to cut or a thrusting motion to cut when you're doing things like sengiri. But specifically, uh, when we talk about slicing, um, 
people people talk about like slicing, uh, pulling through your slice and that kind of stuff. And that's much more common with knives like Yanagiba. Uh, people do tend to use things much more in that way in Japan. Whereas here, you may see people sawing at things a lot more or pushing down or even pushing directly straight down. Um, so it's it's one of the differences, but not as different as, as people make it out to be. Uh, I think there are a lot more similarities uh, than, than there are differences. And there's just like tiny little adjustments that one has to make in terms of the, the angle that you approach things at or what goes on in your mind as you cut things. Uh, Japanese knives aren't always brown the same on either side, even for the double bevel knives. And so because they exert pressure differently on either side, they sometimes can steer through food. So for example, if you took your single bevel knife and you cut through like, I don't know, kabocha, it's not a great thing to do with your knife, but it's a good example. It's a tall, firm food. Your knife is likely to steer uh, and it's likely gonna go to the left in a really, really strong way. And so in your mind, when you're cutting things, you have to compensate for that by imagining, hey, my knife is gonna cut to the right. Uh, and as you practice that, you can eventually do that in a way where your knife cuts straight consistently the way that you want. But you do have to make adjustments for that kind of stuff. But in terms of like the, the pulling through of stuff, the, the actual arm movement of slicing, um, the same techniques work well for Western knives. There's just not a codified system of cutting as, as much as there is in Japan. There are basic things that people teach here, but Japan ritualizes everything that they do. There's, there's so much to study in, in the perfection of simplicity. And I think that that's, that's where Japanese knives end up being different in terms of use. Mm, that is really well said. There's <laughs> all ritualized and very well studied and uh, applied, improved, applied, improved. Uh, never ending so I, yeah <laughs> I, and right it's never there's never like a good enough you know if you ask any like craftsman or chef like hey have you ever made anything perfect uh, unequivocally the answer will be no you know in, in other countries people might have like one thing that they felt really good about but i have yet to meet any japanese chef or craftsman that was like yep this is this is great this is perfect you know no one is ever satisfied and so they're always trying to change even the the tiniest detail just to improve upon things just a little bit more mm. Right. Um, like, uh, this is kind of a silly example, but, uh, you know, mechanical pencil, like, it's just a mechanical yes. pencil, right? But then they have engineered. So all the companies are competing against just the details. Like, you know, it really doesn't break or it's just sharpened in a way as always freshly, you know, pressed out. I have, I, in fact, I have a uh, mechanical pen from Japan that I use over my German one because every time that you touch paper with it, it rotates the, the lead just a little bit. So you're always writing on the sharpest point of lead instead of like a, a flat section right. of it. I mean, th that's exactly the kind of detail. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but I, I appreciate that, you know, especially like Japanese stationaries, um, stationary items, like, you know, if I go to Japan, I always go straight to uh, Itoya. That's uh one of the biggest uh, right. stationary shop in shops in Japan, and uh, I, I'm like, wow, the kids in the candy store. It's really so many different engineered stationary items. <laughs> there are huge sections of stationery everywhere. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with fountain pens, for example, and uh, you know, obviously Japan makes some great fountain pens. I have a lot of them. I'm writing with one right now. They also make great paper. But like, if you go to a Macy's or like Bloomingdale's here. There's like like maybe one notebook somewhere, but if you go to like any department store in Japan, there's like a whole section of a floor that's dedicated to pens and paper and stationery and envelopes and stamps and tape and like anything you can imagine. Uh, it's so much fun. Yeah, I get really dorky about that stuff too. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So uh, anyway, so uh, so there are many different shapes of Japanese knives. So uh, what are the most basic ones that uh, listeners should know? So again, I think it's important to differentiate between kataba bocho and ryoba bocho, uh, single bevel knives and double bevel knives. In terms of single bevel knives, the traditional single bevel Japanese knives, the three main types that you'll see will be yanagiba, deba, and usuba. Yanagiba is a long, thin knife uh, designed for slicing raw boneless proteins like sashimi. And it gets used for skinning fish or tasks like sukibiki, cutting off the, the scales of fish, um, various things like that. Uh, Deba is a thicker, kind of more triangularly shaped knife uh, that is used for fish butchery. So Sanmayoroshi and Gomayoroshi, uh, the various techniques that are used for breaking down round or flat fish. Uh, and it's the, the knife is used to remove the fillets from the carcass, uh, cutting through some bones, but mostly through joints, taking the head off of fish, splitting the heads in half, uh, th those basic kinds of things. And then Usuba uh, is the knife that gets used for vegetable techniques. So Katsuramuki, Sengiri, 
the kinds of techniques that you'll see used in traditional Japanese cuisine. Uh, though it doesn't make a good vegetable knife for Western kitchens. Uh, it's, it's not as functional for that kind of stuff. In the context of double bevel knives, the main knives that you'll see would be gyuto, uh, which is the Japanese equivalent of a chef's knife, uh, santoku, uh, which is similar in terms of being an all-purpose knife, but is more common in home kitchens in Japan, whereas gyuto you'll see more in professional kitchens in Japan. Um, petty knife, so utility knife. Uh, Sujihiki is a slicing knife. Uh, nakiri is a, a vegetable knife. Uh, common, common in home kitchens, not as much in professional kitchens. Mm. Um, and so those, those would be the main types that you would see often in Japan. There are a ton of other shapes uh, that people make. Right. It's funny because in Japan where santoku and nakiri are king, you know, that's what most people at home use. In Western cultures, most people will gravitate more towards a gyuto, which is similar to the chef's knife that they're used to. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. And by the way, the santoku means uh, all-purpose and it means like three virtues and uh, because it's named for right. its uh, ability to easily handle meat, fish and vegetables. So it's like <laughs> no yes. brainer. It's how it, you can just have uh, make everything nice, nicely cut. Well, and especially in the way that people do stuff in Japan, you know, people are generally working in small spaces uh, with smaller cutting boards and smaller sized ingredients than we're working with in the West. Uh, and so having that kind of smaller knife uh, works well for that kind of setting. In the U.S., uh, we, we use bigger ingredients and generally people have bigger kitchen space. And so having something larger like a gyuto ends up being a more versatile tool in Western kitchens uh, because the larger knife will allow you to work with larger quantities of ingredients, larger sized ingredients. Uh, and it's also just more similar to what people are used to uh, in terms of shape and size. Santokus can be great for people here as well. Uh, but it just depends on, on what people are trying to do, how they're cutting, what kinds of foods they're cutting, uh, so on and mm, so forth. Right. Well, not many Japanese people do a lot of uh, big barbecue parties, so <laughs> that makes sense. It's so it's so rare. I have to drive, whenever I go to my in-laws' house, I have to drive like 45 minutes to go to this one meat store. That's the only place that I can buy like large cuts of meat. Because if you go to the supermarket, everything is like already sliced or ready for the kind of cooking that people do at home. But you can't find like, a whole, you know, rib roast or a whole beef tongue or something like that without going to specialty markets. Right. That's right. And uh, so, by the way, this is another thing, like how meticulous Japanese people get, uh, which I appreciate, is that if you buy uh, packaged products, um, you don't have to use any uh, scissors or anything unless it opens nicely, easily, perfectly without breaking anything. Um, it's a defective, like design failure in right. Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They make it so easy on the consumer to do everything. Like even the, the onigiri wrappers are like the greatest example of that, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the wrapper itself is shaped directly around the onigiri. And then there's like little plastic inserts inside to make sure that the nori doesn't touch the rice and get soggy. And when you open it up, it all like, it opens up perfectly and comes together. So you hold this thing in your hand right. that is just instantly ready to go. And that's like anywhere. You can get that anywhere. It's, you know, it's truly yeah, amazing. I, I really feel like I'm spoiled. Uh, I grew up with that kind of mindset of packaging. And uh, yeah, when I get frustrated about Americans, like, oh, this broke. And then I have to use scissors and let's get everything. And there's something spilled. A hundred percent. A hundred. I often wonder like how Japanese people come to the U.S. and aren't more frustrated with like everything. It's not to say that Japan is perfect. I mean, Japan has a, a number of flaws, certainly. But like in terms of the the consumer experience of stuff, Japan really, really does that well. I feel like everything is just so catered to the, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say, but that concept of like omotenashi, like people really, really think about that as they do everything, uh, in, including package design. So yeah. Right. Well, I, I think you really, uh, that's a great point that it's not about the meticulousness and perfection. It's about how to make your life easier. That's the mindset of producers. And yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, sometimes I feel like, uh, is this necessary? I mean, it's American packaging is probably enough. Everybody has a scissors. So, you know, <laughs> that kind of uh, thing is, but yeah, the point is uh, people think about you as a user and they companies design yes. things, including Japanese knives. In, Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, so let's take a quick break here. And, and when we come back, we'll discuss uh, John's unique relationships with knife making craftsmen and what Japanese knife you should get and much, much more. So please stay with us.
This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is John Broida, who is the owner of Japanese Knife Imports based in California. So let's talk about your business. So you founded Japanese Knife Imports in 2010. And so what is the concept yeah. of Japanese Knife Imports and why did you start the business? So um, I guess let me start with why I started the business and that will lead into the concept. Uh, I had been cooking professionally. I think I had just come back from Italy at that point. Uh, and I was planning to go back to Italy to work with one of my friends, but that ended up taking a lot longer than I would have thought. So I worked somewhere else for a little bit and it was a, not a great experience. And in fact, uh, it was the first job that I ever quit in like a bad way. I walked out, uh, never done that before. Uh, and I was so disheartened with cooking. I think, you know, anyone that's cooked professionally understands the, the negatives of the career. And of course there are positives as well. I, I love cooking and I loved cooking professionally, but there are a lot of negatives uh, of, of the industry and uh, they all just kind of wore me down. And so when I left that job, I didn't think it would be the end of my cooking career, but it did end up being the end of my cooking career. I, I didn't feel like I could ever go back to it. So I kept trying different things. I did, you know, like private chefing for a little bit some catering stuff. Uh, I, I tried to work in nonprofits for a little bit, but uh, nothing, nothing satisfied me in the way that cooking did. Even the nonprofits where I thought it would be great to do something that made me feel good about what I was doing, or I could feel soulfully satisfied in the way that cooking did for me. It just wasn't the same. Uh, there's something beautiful about this kind of uh, congruence of, of artistry and craftsmanship and culture that occurs only in food. Um, and so as I was floundering around lost in life, my wife now uh, and my parents and her parents got together and they're like, look, you were really dorky about knives when you were cooking. That was like your obsession with the knives and sharpening. Why don't you try something with that? And, and the more that I thought about it, the more that I was like, wow, this might really be the thing that does it for me where I can tie together my love of food and cooking with my absurd dorkiness of Japanese knives. But also more than that, that I get to utilize all this time I spent studying about Japan and I get to share Japanese culture and history with people uh, and, and show them the things that I think are interesting and amazing about Japan and introduce them to parts of culture and history that I guess most people wouldn't otherwise have a chance to see. Um, I, obviously I'm not Japanese, you know, and so my, my ability to do things is limited by the fact that I am not Japanese, but I do spend a lot of time studying and I do spend a lot of time there, uh, learning stuff. My wife is Japanese, so she, you know, keeps me in check. And, uh, so the company has ended up being exactly that. It's a way for us to share Japan with people. Uh, and the way that we do that happens to be through knives and sharpening and customer service. But if, if I look at what the root is of what we do, it's about sharing Japanese culture with people and, and teaching them about that, teaching them about the history of stuff and, and the, the food concepts. And I, I love that. I love that every day I get to come in and, and represent something that I am truly passionate about. Mm. Yeah. I, well, no wonder you had a good reputation about, you know, your passion and personality. Um, you have a mission in your mind. And uh, also you said that despite, you know, Japanese, I think because you are not Japanese, that's why you can see what people are looking for outside of Japanese culture, which is really crucially important to introduce something new. Well, yeah. yeah. There can be advantages with that, certainly. But there, I think, you know, obviously that's worked well for me, right? I, I understand how Western chefs are going to be using Japanese knives. And so we can modify knives to be more appropriate for what they're going to do. And we can teach people how to adjust their techniques to be more appropriate for the kinds of things you'll see in, you know, French, Italian, Spanish kitchens, uh, relative to Japanese kitchens. Mm -hmm. But at the same, at the same time, it's a disadvantage. Kind of like when I was cooking in Japan, uh, you know, my chef would, would talk to me about like making dashi. 
but I didn't grow up making dashi. So I don't, I don't know what dashi is supposed to taste like for him. You know, how, how much katsuobushi, how much kombu, uh, do you use ajinomoto when you cook or not? You know, like these are real like serious questions, right? And there are things that are deeply ingrained in people that grew up in Japanese culture and do not come naturally to those who don't. How do you talk to craftsmen? What kinds of things are okay to ask for? How much is too much? How do you represent people well? And, and I think those things put me at a disadvantage uh, and, and something that I constantly have to, to work at in terms of learning more about culture and being more of a, a cultural insider as opposed to an outsider. And in Japan, as, as you know, that's difficult. Uh, Japan is a very insular, uh, homogenous culture and, and outsiders are dealt with in a, in a very specific way. And it's not to say that people are rude to outsiders, although there are times that that happens. In general, it's just that they're different and people don't know how to deal with them. And so I'm inherently having to overcome that in, in what I do uh, to, to help people. Mm, right. Well, yeah. I still uh, think that you have that advantage just because you are extra curious, you are extra industrious. And you, I just love it. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I just really love <laughs> right. it, you know? But not just, you know, I see other, for example, other sake educators uh, who are not Japanese, mm -hmm. but they're different ways. They're really immersed into Japanese culture as well as their born, you know, objective view to the culture, which really is enriching each category, uh, whether or not it's just something you know, like categorized as traditional, like sake or Japanese knife, they are really classic, but For yeah, sure. like sushi, you know, California rolls, that's kind of like good example too. So anyways. You know, yeah. it, find, it kind of reminds me actually, sorry mm -hmm. to interrupt, it kind of reminds me of my wife. So I have a degree in Asian studies. She has a degree in American studies. She's not a US citizen. She has a green card here. Uh, she knows more about the US than I ever will. And, and I think that's kind of the point that you're getting at is that coming from an outside perspective, you're, you're forced to kind of compensate for that in a way. And so you'll see like immigrants that come to the U.S. know more about like U.S. government and U.S. history and U.S. culture than people that live here and take that kind of stuff for granted. And, and in that sense, absolutely, I think that uh, it can be an advantage. Right. Well, how many uh, citizenship, the hundred questions can you answer, right? <laughs> if you take the citizenship right. question. No, I, you know, I don't know how well I would do and she would kill it. Like she would crush it. And I'd be sitting there like, I promise I'm American. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, so, uh, so you have great product lines on your website. And uh, so, how did you start working with uh, those superior manufacturers? Because I don't think it was easy to build relationships uh, with all those traditional no, Japanese knives. It was not. <laughs> it was not. Um, so when when I was cooking professionally. Uh, I, as I mentioned, was obsessed with knives. And what I would do is I would take all of my extra income and I would buy knives and stones and I would use as many of them as I could. And I would keep the ones that I loved and sell all the ones I didn't like, and then use that money plus whatever other money I was making and do that over and over and over again until I started to hone down the things that I really, really enjoyed the most, my favorite stones, my favorite knives. Um, and I thought that I knew a decent bit about knives at that point. And so when we begin this business, um, my wife, Sarah, and I, we reached out to my favorite knife companies. Uh, and I thought most of them were manufacturers. We reached out to them to see who would do business with us. And some people were totally fine. They're like, sure, not a problem. But most people were like, mm, I don't know. We have to meet first. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. And that like face-to-face uh, -face meeting in Japan is such, a, such an important part of doing business there. Uh, so we went to Japan for, for many months. Uh, and while we were there, we started to meet with the companies that we had reached out to. And I, I started to realize, hey, some of these people actually make things, but a lot of them don't. They're actually people behind those people that make things. And so we started to meet those people. And uh, as I was able to do that, I was able to go into workshops and see how people were working, uh, who, who did work that I thought made sense, who didn't, you know, hold a bunch of different knives. And we could start to narrow down who, who I thought was doing a really good job and whose stuff wasn't really necessarily my personal taste. Um, and try to build those relationships over time. And we've been really fortunate in the sense that the business partners that we did start with have been so helpful in introducing us to, to other people and teaching us about things. So for example, like one, one guy that has become my sharpening teacher, my master, um, Yamamoto-san, uh, he has a company together with his father that does knife making, sharpening specifically out of Sakai. And uh, when I met him, he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. But he took time to explain to me, hey, this is how stuff works. And this is how people do this. And this is why people do that. Uh, and has really 
just been awesome in terms of being open with me. Uh, and as I was able to educate myself more and, uh, you know, really develop not, not just my education on knives, but also develop my Japanese language ability beyond what it had been in college, um, we were able to connect with more people. My, my wife also has a really unique advantage in the sense that she comes from uh, an artist family. Her family, uh, they're the uh, togeka, they, they make uh, pottery, uh, traditional Japanese pottery. And so I think that that put a lot of the craftsmen at ease, knowing that we come from a place of appreciating art and crafts in Japan, and that we're trying to represent them in the, in the best way that, that they want to be represented. Uh, and that has, that has really made inroads to these companies really not necessarily easy, but possible for us. But I think the biggest thing is just cultural sensitivity and, and language, mm. uh, you know, being, being open to the way that things are going to be different there and, and trying to work within that context, fit within that framework, be respectful of, of people's ways of doing things and be able to speak to them in their own language. Mm. Uh, th those things make a big difference to people. Right. Well, I heard that you uh, really established great relationships with them. Like, you know, some of them are teachers, some of them are mentors and, and friends. They're like friends at this point. You know, they're, they're the people that I, I want to go and see that I care about. You know, when, when uh, like when the tsunami happened, you know, we reached out and we, we fundraised for people to help them rebuild their workshops. And, you know, they're people that we care about, not just in a business sense. And I would hope that long after my business is gone, that they're still the people that I call friends. Mm. Uh, so... It's, it's become that. Right. So how does it work? So you have products and then, you know, they have a new release or it's just like you do keep making the one specific standard form and then you stay in touch with so, them? Yeah. So we've, we've done a variety of things. Um, one of the, the interesting things that I think we do is this. When, when I first went to Japan, we started looking at things that were already being made. Uh, but I quickly realized that it would be possible for us to have things custom made for us. Uh, and everyone was willing to do that as long as we were able to create our own brand. And in doing so, we could do things a little bit more the way that I wanted to uh, and adapt those things to Western kitchens a little bit more. Uh, there are things that Japanese people don't care about that Westerners do. Uh, for example, uh, rounding of spines and choils is just a really simple, common example. In Japan, no one really cares about it. No one really talks about it. It's not an issue. It's just the way things are. So everything is kind of like squared off and sharp and it doesn't bother anyone. But in the US, because of the way that people grip things and because of the kinds of ingredients they cut and the way that they cut, but also just, uh, you know, the kind of expectation they have, having rounded spines and choils makes the knife a lot more comfortable to, to hold and use. So we could enact those kinds of things with the knives we were doing. Mm -hmm. We could also do different profiles or different heat treatments with things. And so we've moved into this realm of having things custom made for us. Uh, to, to the way that I would like things to be made, uh, which I think works well for the kinds of kitchens that we see here in the West, but also because it's just so much easier to, to sell things to people that I truly believe in and am passionate about. Mm. Uh, and so that, that's predominantly what we do. Uh, and so oftentimes we'll create new lines, but sometimes the, the guys in Japan will create new lines and I think they're awesome and I'll carry those. Mm. So we're not tied into any one specific thing. I just want to bring forth the, 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 in my opinion, the best things that we can offer people. And whether that's what the craftsman thinks is the best thing that they're making or what I think will be better for people or what customers think is going to be best for themselves, we, we want to fit people with the things that suit them the best. Mm, so sounds like you're learning from them, but they're, they're learning from you. Uh, through you, they learn the market uh, demand in outside the country. So yeah, you, I think, mutually support each other. I think any good relationship has to work that way. It, it cannot be a one-way street. If I, I look at it the same way that you know my my teachers in Japan have been, uh, in the in the sense that they offered me a free education. They'll talk to me about knives and teach me about sharpening and spend hours and hours with me all the time uh, for nothing. They don't ask anything of me. But of course, you know we buy knives from them and we support them and and we try and introduce them to people. And when they have questions, we answer those questions. And when they when they need translation help, we help with their translation. And it's that, it's that relationship where I'm invested in them and they're invested in me and we care about each other and each other's well-beings uh, that makes this work. Mm, right. So, by the way, uh, who are your clients? Are they mostly chefs or could be anybody? Well, <laughs> it's, been, it's been interesting over the last year. Uh, prior to COVID, I would say that 90% of our clientele were professional chefs, cooks. Uh, in mostly Western restaurants, not so many Japanese chefs, uh, although we do have some. Um, and as COVID hit, of course, restaurants closed down and people started cooking more at home. 
And so we've transitioned more into like home cooks over the last year. And now the restaurants are starting to open back up again. So we're seeing more of that in my mind, even though I don't cook professionally anymore, I'm not a professional chef anymore. Uh, I still have the, the mentality, the mindset of a professional chef. And they're the people that I relate to the best and, and talk to most comfortably and understand the, the best. And so those are the customers that I tend to deal well with. And, and our, our business has been built around that. It doesn't mean that if you're a home cook, we're not going to work well for you. I'll bend over backwards for anyone. I just want to help people out. Uh, but in my mind, we cater to professional chefs. Uh, yeah. Hey. Well, it sounds like, uh, thanks to the COVID, the pie of the Japanese knife users got expanded. But so... It did very much right? so. That's, that's great. And once you you own it, you can't go back. So <laughs> hopefully it's going to stay it's, that way. Yeah. No, you know, as soon as people use stuff, they immediately see how much more fun it is to cook with a tool like this, how much more enjoyable cooking at home can be, how much easier it can be, uh, how, how different things can, can taste. Uh, and, and so, yeah, as, as people have started cooking more through COVID and started experiencing more of this kind of stuff, I don't think people are going to go back to using other things. Mm. Um, it's, it's been really great to see, actually. So many people get so much more excited about cooking. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so, well, just the talking about chefs, I heard um, that most professional chefs in the U.S. own at least one Japanese knife. Is that true? Is that that popular in terms of... I don't know if I would say most. They're, they're so popular right now. Um, but it, it really depends on the place, the kind of restaurant and the, the kind of chef that is running that kitchen. Mm. Um, we have, we have really different kitchen culture here, right? Like in Japan, uh, everything is kind of already preordained. Uh, you go into the, the restaurant, it doesn't matter if you have knives or not, your chef will say like, use this, buy this. You know, they, they give you like clear direction. Here, there's much less clear direction. There's no culture of like not having nicer knives than your uh, uh, senpai or like your boss, the, the people above you. Um, and so people use whatever, people use whatever they want to use here uh, and, and that's fine. But uh, more and more people are starting to use Japanese knives because they tend to work better for a lot of things. They're not the end-all be-all of knives. Uh, it's, it's about finding the right fit for your techniques, for your personality. But in many cases, as, as I mentioned before, I think that because they're so thin, they make cutting so much more enjoyable as a function of what people imagine good cutting to be. That's hard to overcome with other mm. knives. So yes, many, many, many chefs use Japanese knives. It's very common now. Mm. Okay, and one thing we cannot skip uh, when you talk about Japanese knives, that's about sharpening. So um, you have many great videos on your website and uh, that's amazing. But compared to Western knives, uh, sharpening is very, extremely important in case of Japanese knives. So why is that and how often shall we sharpen Japanese knives? I don't know if sharpening is any more or less important with Japanese knives relative to Western knives. I think there are cultural differences with respect to that. I don't think that People in Western kitchens using Western knives think about sharpness quite in the same way due to the kind of cutting techniques that are using or just, you know, how, how they've been conditioned to, to be. But in Japan, because, because the food is so apparently simple, I'm not going to call the food simple because it's nothing of the sort, but on, on a surface level, when you look at it, it's so simple and clean. You really only get to show your skill and technique through uh, like cutting techniques, through how well you grill something. And so having that like absurd level of sharpness uh, becomes extremely important. You're also working with very like fresh ingredients all the time. And so doing those ingredients honor by having a very sharp knife uh, really, really helps out. Um, I think sharpening is becoming more and more common and popular uh, in the US or in, in Western cultures in general. So I'm, I'm happy to see that. And there are different ways that people sharpen too. You know, Japanese knives are best on Japanese water stones. Uh, there, it's a whole system that works in and of itself. You can sharpen German knives on Japanese water stones too, but I wouldn't take a Japanese knife and sharpen it on a belt grinder or a grinding wheel in quite the same way. It's not gonna work well for that kind of knife. Mm. Um, so I think it's the kind of sharpening that works well for Japanese knives that's very important. Okay. And in terms of how often to, to sharpen, well, like, this is the question that everyone asks me literally all day, every day, and I have the worst answer for it. Um, you know, I think everyone's looking for an answer like once every three months or once every six months. But my answer is you sharpen when the knife doesn't do what you want it to do anymore. And that's going to vary for everyone. It's going to depend on what kind of cutting board you use, what kind of food you're cutting, uh, what kind of knife it is, how, how it was heat treated, what kind of steel it is, how it was sharpened. And also, really importantly, what your experience is of what's sharp and not sharp. Uh, so I found over time as I was sharpening my knives, I got used to sharper edges 
more and more. And I wanted them to be more and more that way. So I sharpened more often, even though my knife wasn't dull, I kept sharpening it to make sure that it was at that kind of peak level of sharpness more. Uh, that was me. I was a crazy person. Some other person might sharpen once a year and they're fine with that level of sharpness. I think it would drive me nuts. The most important thing is to be introspective when you cut. Is my knife working well for me? Is it not? If so, why? If not, why? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and take a look at those things constantly. That will dictate when you need to sharpen. Okay. Right. Well, the, I heard that, you know, in general, Japanese, uh, Japanese style knife tend to have um, softer uh, edges. So you need to sharpen more often. But, you know, based on what you just said, I... I Actually, the opposite of that is true. Oh, really? The opposite of that is true. Japan yeah, Japanese knives tend to have much harder steel, much harder edges. Um, and as a function of that, uh, they can actually be chipped or damaged more easily. So they may require sharpening for that. But Western knives have uh, softer steel. And so they don't stay sharp as long, but they resist damage a lot better. I think the reason that people sharpen Japanese knives much more often is exactly what I was speaking about, which is that the expectation of sharpness is different. Uh, Western knives work through cleaving things apart and through rocking motions and heavy wedging pressure. Uh, whereas Japanese knives are designed to slice through things, not wedge in them so much, uh, and, and certainly not rocking or, or smashing things. And so what's required of them to work that way is greater sharpness, and, and therefore people sharpen more often. Mm, right. So Japanese knives, the, the core, the center of the Japanese knives mm -hmm. are harder, right? I mean, yes. and then outside is the soft. I just wanted to, uh, not to confuse uh, listeners and uh, because of yeah. my lack of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, so in, in the case of like awase bocho, clad knives, um, you know, yeah, the, the outside is generally softer and the core steel is, is harder. There are also zenko or like mono steel knives where the entire knife is harder. But in general, the cutting edge of Japanese knives, whether it's a, a zenko or mono steel knife or a clad knife, the, the cutting edge is going to be harder than Western equivalents will be. Uh, there's a, a scale of measure that people use called the Rockwell Hardness Scale. Uh, and most Western knives tend to be sub 60 on the Rockwell hardness scale, whereas Japanese knives will run the gamut from about 58, 59 up to like the mid 60s. Uh, and, and so that is a much harder knife. Mm, right. Okay. By the way, I have a like regular basic rectangular sharpening stone and I don't sharpen my knives mm -hmm. so often, but it's very um, meditating. You know, it's just that uh, you focus on it because it's knife. I have to be careful. And then after that, when right. it's noticeably sharper and it's rewarding too. So I like sharpening my knives. So, you know, I find it very relaxing also, although I don't meditate with it so much anymore. <laughs> In fact, I find that finding the right kind of music is really what's important. I got to get stuff that's like got a, a high energy upbeat thing. This is this is no joke. This is a real thing. And if you ever see me in the back of my store sharpening and kind of dancing a little bit, it's because I'm likely listening to merengue. <laughs> I find it's really good music with like an upbeat pace and, you know, gets me into a good rhythm with the sharpening. So, I will apply that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, by the way, so the number of Japanese knife craftsmen, um, traditional craftsmen, has been dangerously mm -hmm. declining. And uh, uh, we, I think, are worried yes. about losing precious tradition and techniques. So... How do you predict the future Absolutely. of the Japanese knife industry? Because you know the latest situation of the industry. I think it's really, really difficult. Um, it's, it's a tough situation and part of it is a function of, of Japanese culture. Um, like I, if, if, you, if you look at, for example, like Chinese culture versus Japanese culture in the context of knife companies, uh, say that I'm an American and I wanna make knives and I go to China and I'm like, look, I wanna make 5,000 of this one kind of knife and their factory has the ability to make 1,000 of that kind of knife, they are more likely to say yes and scale up and, and do that 5,000. Maybe in the beginning it won't be as good, but it will eventually get good because they're doing it a lot. In Japan, that same kind of thing is going to yield a very different result. The, the craftsman will look at me like, hey, we only make 1,000, so you can have 1,000, but you can't have 5,000. This is all we do. Um, and, and so their growth is more limited because they're focused on I guess the craftsmanship of it and, and making sure that they take time to do things well. It's the same like Japanese cooking. You know, people are washing rice for years before they start doing other things. And then it's like just making makanai, just making staff meal. And, and people do that kind of stuff for years because they're trying to get the little details right. Uh, and so because of that, there aren't a lot of apprentices. People are worried about the future. Uh, they're not sure whether the apprentices will be able to be financially stable. And if they're not sure that their apprentices will be financially stable, they're not likely to take on apprentices. Um, and so we see fewer and fewer people entering the industry. 
In the last few years, though, because demand has increased so much, we've started to see much greater investment from companies and from the, the governments uh, in this. And so there are new workshops being built and new younger craftsmen uh, starting to enter the business. And I think that's really cool. What I'm worried for is that there's going to be a huge gap. There's a ton of craftsmen in their like 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and then very few in that in-between range. And then there are a lot more starting to be in the 20s and 30s um, that just started more recently. And so I think there's going to be a, a little gap where things maybe aren't quite as good as they once were before this new generation of craftsmen starts to really pick things up. And that's not to say that there aren't excellent younger craftsmen. There are awesome, awesome young craftsmen out there. Mm. Uh, it's just that in many cases, like, like all things, it's a function of experience over time. They just haven't had the kind of time that they need yet to develop that perfection in the, in the details. Mm. Um, and, and they just got to keep at it. But I, I'm hopeful for the future. Right. I think that as long as demand in foreign markets stays up, there is great potential for J Japan domestically to do well. But domestically, the demand has declined so dramatically. You know, young, young kids would rather go to culinary school for Western cuisine than traditional Japanese cuisine. So there's less demand for, you know, traditional single bevel knives. Um, and also, you know, the population that is not growing, um, which makes it very difficult for companies to expand and grow. But thankfully, in the West, Japanese knives are amazingly popular and and continue to sell and people continue to love and use them. And that has allowed a lot of these businesses to hire new craftsmen, train new craftsmen and start to grow again. Mm, right. So you have a lot to do <laughs> because you've been a very big yes. um, ambassador uh, for expanding the foreign market. So doing my yeah. best. Um, so what's your plan for the future? Hmm. I should I should be thinking about this much more. Um, I I'm never really sure where the future takes me. I think the only thing that I really care about is to make sure that I'm doing a good job at representing the craftsmen that we work with well, um, doing a great job for the customers, making sure that we we match them with things that make sense and really educating them well. I, obviously, I need to I need to grow my company and support the staff that we have here and my family. Uh, I look forward to growing at a slow and steady pace. Uh, I'm, I'm not looking at my life as a sprint. Uh, I'm trying to look at it as a marathon. And I think that's what's made companies that I look up to really successful, especially in Japan. You see multi-generational companies uh, that, that exist for exceedingly long periods of time. And maybe they're not growing so fast, but they are, they are steady. Uh, and that is what I've tried to do. So we're not trying to order a ton of knives all at once from someone. We're trying to order consistently from people for a long period of time and make sure that we have long-standing relationships. Uh, and so as I move into the future, I will continue to do so with that mindset. Mm, right, like a knife craftsman. And also I, I see, for example, even very competitive Tokyo market, uh, some restaurants mm -hmm. have second generation, which I don't think is possible right. in New York, somewhere like LA or New York. So, yeah. No, but it's, it's less common culturally. I mean, like when, when, even when I think about myself, right? Like my dad is a CPA and my mom is a compensation management consultant or was, she retired now. I didn't go into either of those fields. Here, we are encouraged to follow our dreams, uh, do the things that, that make us feel best. But as an example, I have a friend who is a, a Bizen uh, potter. He makes a style of pottery from Japan, traditional style called Bizen. And I wanna say he's like a 17th generation potter at this point. His family was one of the original uh, kilns of, of Bizen. Uh, when I was hanging out with him a couple of years ago, I asked him like, hey, did you always want to do yakimono? Did you always want to make pottery for a living? And uh, he said, no, you know, really like I thought maybe like having a coffee shop would be really cool. He's very passionate about coffee and that kind of like customer service experience. He's like, but I, I didn't have a choice. This is what I had to do for, for my family to continue this kind of thing. So I've had to find ways to make this the thing that I'm passionate about. And uh, I thought a lot about that. And I think that there's something really beautiful and special about that. Uh, maybe it's not so much that we all have to follow our dreams so literally, but rather that we figure out how to incorporate our dreams into the things that we do uh, that will allow us to have these multi-generational companies that, that are, are long-lasting and support, you know, all of our families for, for many years to come. Mm, right. Okay. Wow. So, well, 
Sorry for the long answer. No, no, no. I mean, just amazing. So, uh, well, I really want to uh, want you to keep me posted. Maybe we can just have another conversation. So, so meanwhile, where can we、Anytime. find your updates online and on social media? Well, I think the easiest place to find me is at my website,、uh, JapaneseKnifeImports.com.、Uh, but we are also on Instagram at JKnifeImports, on Twitter at the same, JKnifeImports, on Facebook.、Uh, really, though, like if you just email me, you reach out to me,、uh, it's John at JapaneseKnifeImports.com. I'll do my best to respond.、Uh, I, I really take customer engagement very seriously.、Uh, and though I'm not always the fastest at it, I'll do my best to get back to people with honest, Uh, as unbiased as I can provide answers for people.、Mm. Our job isn't to sell people the things that we have here. Our job is to educate people and allow them to make the most informed decisions that they can.、Uh, and so reach out and we will do our best for you. Wonderful. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show guests,、uh, show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Aman Wang, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.